Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, six aid workers killed in an ambush in South Sudan and tributes continue to pour in for anti-apartheid struggle icon Ahmed Kathwada. In economics news, travel and tourism experts prepare to meet in South Africa and in sports news. South Africa's Bafana Bafana draw with Angola in a friendly. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. The former First Lady of Côte d'Ivoire, Simone Bagpo, has been acquitted of crimes against humanity at a trial in the country's capital, Abidjan. The charges related to violence that followed a presidential election in 2010 when her husband, Laurent, refused to concede defeat to Alassane Ouattara. Judges dismissed the prosecution's argument that Simone tried to buy arms. The parties have 60 days to appeal the verdict. Laurent is on trial for crimes against humanity, including murder, rape and persecution, having been handed over in November 2011 to the International Criminal Court in The, in the Hague. It also wanted to prosecute his wife and issued a warrant for her arrest. But Ivorian authorities refused to hand, over, to hand her over, insisting she would receive a fair trial at home. Zambia has opened public consultations on the government's plan to leave the International Criminal Court as several other African countries reassess their membership. South Africa recently revoked its planned departure from the ICC based in The Hague and the Gambia's new president, Adama Barrow, reversed his predecessor's decision to withdraw from the Rome Statute. Zambia's consultation will run until this Friday. The United Nations has lauded South African struggle icon Ahmed Kathrada for his key role in galvanizing support both at home and abroad in the fight against apartheid and its eventual dismantling. UN Chief Antonio Guterres issued a note paying tribute to Kathrada and all those who struggled to bring an end to apartheid. South Africa's former Deputy President Pumzlim Lambunuka, now a senior UN official, believes Kathrada's legacy holds lessons for the country's current leaders. He teaches uh, uh, the current crop of leaders and all of us the importance of integrity that never wavers. Sustained integrity because uh, we have not arrived where, uh, to the promised land and we still need to work hard. We still need to sacrifice. This is not the time when we should be uh, turning our back uh, against the poor. We should still be focused uh, on working hard to ensure that we leave no one behind in all our communities. 
South Africa's ambassador to the United Nations, Jerry Machila, has also reflected on how Kithrada's role, along with other Ravonia trialists, shaped the international response to the injustice that apartheid represented. He played such a key role in galvanizing support at home and abroad. During the liberation struggle, there was the fourth pillar. This fourth pillar was international solidarity and anti-apartheid. And you'll recall that immediately um, after they were arrested in Rivonia, the international community just demanded, especially in these chambers, they demanded their immediate release. They regard them as fighters for justice, for human rights, and therefore did not recognize their arrest and incarceration. And finally, the United Nations has confirmed the deaths of two members of a Security Council expert group who had been missing in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for more than two weeks. Michael Sharp and Zeda Catalan, accompanied by four Congolese nationals, were in the Kasai Central region when they disappeared on the 12th of March. The remains were discovered on Monday by peacekeepers with the UN mission in the country, MONUSCO. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has issued a statement saying he's deeply saddened to confirm the deaths. The UN chief urged the Congolese authorities to continue the search for the four missing nationals. DNPIN reports. Michael and Zaida lost their lives seeking to understand the causes of conflict and insecurity in the DRC in order to help bring peace to the country and its people, he said. We will honor their memory by continuing to support the invaluable work of the group of experts and the whole UN family in the DRC. Mr. Guterres expressed hope that the Congolese authorities will conduct a full investigation into the incident. The Secretary-General said the UN will also launch an inquiry, adding that in case of criminal acts, the United Nations will do everything to ensure that justice is done. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Our six aid workers were killed in an ambush in South Sudan while traveling from the capital, Juba, to the town of Pibo. This is the highest number of aid workers killed in a single incident since the country's civil war began in December 2013. The UN says the death of the aid workers brings to 88, the number of workers killed in South Sudan over the past three years. James Shimanyula has more. The killing of the seven international aid workers in South Sudan has shocked the United Nations fraternity and its representatives in the country as well as the African Union. 
Speaking from South Sudan capital Juba, spokesman for the United Nations organization that distributes humanitarian aid to people in South Sudan, known in short as OCHA, its representative Ian Wrigley briefly spotlighted on the repercussions of the killing. Make aid workers uh, really think about where they're going and, and where they're working and the potential impact then is that uh, some populations, uh, their needs might not be met if aid workers decide it's uh, unsafe to go to those uh, those areas. The government says that it's doing everything in its power to guarantee the safety and security of aid workers outside of Juba on roads such as the Juba Pibor Road where this uh, incident happened. The government is not able to make those assurances a reality for aid workers. Aid workers will continue to do the best they can to reach people in need. Uh, but this latest incident just is a, a demonstration of exactly how challenging and dangerous it is for those courageous aid workers to, to do that. The killing of the aid workers occurred as the African Union Commissioner Musa Mohammed wrapped up a short visit to South Sudan. Speaking in Juba through a French interpreter, Mohammed sounded a strong condemnation of the attack. We strongly condemn and denounce the killing of the six humanitarian uh, uh, actors who have come here to help uh, the people and yet uh, they have been killed. So we are appealing to the government and all, to all the stakeholders, the actors, so that they protect uh, these humanitarian actors who uh, are here to help uh, the victims, to help the people of South Sudan. The slain aid workers belonged to an aid group known as Grassroot Empowerment and Development Organization, whose spokesman Jafar Mbugwa was puzzled by the deadly act. So we don't understand who are the killers. Three were Kenyans, three were South Sudanese. President Salva Kiri's spokesman, Ateng Wekateng, squarely blamed the rebels for the killings. There's nobody who can do this apart from the rebels. Uh, the rebels can do this just in an attempt to uh, drive the wedge between the government and uh, the international community. Our soldiers another fact aid workers. So this is the work of rebels. We have been saying time and again that the pockets of rebels that are operating in South Sudan have now moved to commit crimes similar to that that are actually committed by terrorist organizations. So there's no doubt about that. So we are in control. You know, what is happening is that, you know, there are isolated uh, areas that the pocket of rebels are operating between roads, you know. There have been a sporadic attack by the rebels against the civilian target. So... There are rebels who are actually, who actually take the advantage, the security lapses, and, and cause havoc. It doesn't mean that we don't control the country. As has been the trend since fighting erupted in the country more than three years ago, the government in Juba always accuses rebels of carrying out atrocious acts and killings, and the rebels too thrust the accusation at the government contending that in some areas where death occurs, they are not in control. But the government's presence is very much in place, as rebel chief Riek Machar's spokesman, Gabriel Lampu, explains. The location there is under the full control of the government forces and their militias, not under our own control. We never reached there, we have not even reached that area yet. Why should we attack people who are helping the community? The government
government is just making this propaganda because they want to stop these aid workers from coming to our area and offering these services. They have always targeted the aid workers, and at the end they blame it on us. But the truth is, even the UNHCR knows that. Even these aid agents, they know very well that they don't attack aid workers. We get them, we make sure that okay, we protect them. In our areas, we always protect the aid workers. That was Gabriel Lampu, military spokesman for South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar. Reporting for Channel Africa. It's 8.12 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Rooting out corruption and building an inclusive and non-racial South Africa will be the best tribute to late struggle veteran Ahmed Kathrada. This is according to mourners at a briefing organized by the Nelson Mandela Foundation and the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation in Johannesburg yesterday. Uncle Kathy, as he was affectionately known, passed on in the early hours of yesterday at the age of 87. He spent years on Robben Island with former President Nelson Mandel, Walter Sisulu, Governor Mbegi, Andrew Langeni, and Dennis Goldberg, among others. Ndebo Mugobo has more. A media briefing initially called to update the nation on the ailing ANC struggle icon Ahmed Kathrada turned into a memorial service following his death in the early hours of today. Speaker after speaker described him as a selfless and dedicated freedom fighter who lived to see his people free from the yoke of apartheid. The head of his foundation, Nashin Palton, says fighting all social ills including corruption would be a fitting tribute to the late Ahmed Kathrada. But fundamentally to Uncle Kathy are two things, is the sense of activism, but living his life as well as, as working towards a non-racial society. Many people were asking me in the last few days, what's his financial status? I can say upfront, he didn't serve on any boards, he had no major shares in any particular company, and he declined much of those positions. So that's the richness of Castrada's life, the sense of social justice, unfinished work, places a huge responsibility on all of us. And we would be failing him and his generation if we don't stop the rot that is setting in today. Standing shoulder to shoulder with the world's icon Nelson Mandela, the late Ahmed Kathrada was Mandela's confidant and one of his closest comrades in and outside prison life. Madiba's daughter Zenani was reduced to tears when reminiscing about the life her father and uncle Kathy lived. For many decades he was one of my father's closest friends. I arranged for him to spend time with my dad during those final days. I love watching the two of them shoot jokes, reminiscing about the past, and it is one of my life's most abiding memories. Perhaps the real treasure of any man isn't what they mean to their immediate family, but rather how many outsiders consider them flesh and blood. For Uncle Kathy, as it is for my father, it is abundantly clear that millions of South Africans consider them as relatives of the first order. And that, for me, mirrors so eloquently their very special political achievement. And for those who worked with him, Uncle Keith remains their inspiration. Former South African ambassador to the United States, Barbara Masekela, who worked with him at the ANC's New Age newspaper in the 1960s, says Kathrada died a man troubled by the current state of the nation. I wish that Comrade Kathy had left us 
at a happier time. I wish I could say that he was smiling about South Africa when he left us, but it is not so. We wanted him to be happy, and I don't think we can say he was. I think all his actions in the last years of his life illustrated his disappointment at the outcome, but like the soldier he was, he continued striving for a better life. His lifelong friend Sophie Williams de Princess Uncle Kate was a rare breed in the galaxy of fighters of the liberation struggle. His qualities of commitment for hard work and for respect and for honesty. I also remember him for his kindness and for trying to get together the colored people in organizing us. And we will remember his qualities of hard work and integrity and commitment and dedication and the popular thing that goes around now which says he wasn't afraid to speak to power. He was like that from his young days, not mincing his words with anything that he didn't approve of. He would say it to you, but he would say it with respect. And one of his lawyers at the 1964 Rivonia trial, George Bezos, said he was an unmatched freedom fighter whom even facing the gallows refused to sell his comrades to the apartheid regime. Cathy was probably the smartest accused and the smartest prisoner that the regime had to deal with. Would not dissociate himself from the other accused in the Rivonia trial. He refused to, to point out anything done by any of the other accused. And the prosecutor tried very hard to actually get him on their side. He is the one who actually told the prosecutor, don't expect me to say anything that will help you get a conviction against my comrades. Finish and clap. And as a liberation fighter, Ahmed Katrada remained unyielding to his conviction of non-racialism until his last breath. Unafraid to speak truth to power, he was one of those who called for President Jacob Zuma to step down following the damning constitutional court ruling on Kandla. Kathrada will be buried on Wednesday in accordance with the Muslim religious rights. I am Debo Mokobi in Johannesburg. Addressing sexual violence and conflict is a great moral challenge of our time. The outgoing special representative of the Secretary General for Sexual Violence and Conflict has said Zainab Hawa Bangura was speaking at a panel discussion at UN headquarters about preventing sexual violence and conflict when she made the statement. Following the discussion, Bangura told Lucy Dean about the most persistent challenges she has faced in her time spent addressing and trying to prevent sexual violence in war. For me, the most difficult thing is about the victims. We didn't have a victim-centered approach. If we had put the victim at the center of our discussion, our activities and everything, it will be able to help them to pick up the pieces of their life and move on because they are stigmatized, they are ostracized and they are abandoned by their families. And the scars of rape stays longer than the war. 
a lot of the conflict takes place in, in society where already women are discriminated against. And majority of the victims are women with very little education, if any. So they go down into poverty, more and more of them. Their children can't access education, they can't access health facility. I call the medical and psychosocial support as a weak link. And I talk about the reparation, which is the economically livelihood support as a missing link. It's not been supported. Former sexual and UN women develop a reparation program for women, but nobody's funding it. Less money is put into gender-based violence, so it's bottom of the pits. I think my b- biggest achievement, if I ask myself, is making it visible. You know, even countries who a couple of years ago refused to acknowledge that they were having these crimes in their country accepted. Once you've been able to achieve that, within that, you can then strengthen the political will. We see it's growing. It's not where we wanted it to be, the political will, which is countries taking the decision, taking ownership of it. But we'll get there because at least now they cannot say it's not happening. Speaking of bringing it into the light, why is it so important to have women in policy-making roles, in the military and in peacekeeping positions? My philosophy has always been, if you don't sit on the table, we cannot bring issues that are of critical concern to us on the table. When the resources are being distributed and allotted, if we're not on the table, nobody knows how we feel. It's a woman who carries a baby for nine months knows what it means to be pregnant. As a woman who works in the farm, you know, bend down with the whole, knows what it means to improve agriculture. So issues that are of critical concern to women can only be appropriately addressed and resources allocated to those issues if women are on the table because they bring their personal opinion and, and their experience. So that's why for us to deal with it, that's why we, t- we deal with victims. We work with them. We s- I go down to the field. I talk to them. I became their face and their voice. By actually collecting their stories, I'm able to translate it into the international world. And it's just because I'm a woman. I've been through war in my country. I've seen victims first and relatives, family members who have been victims. So I understand what it means, the powerlessness of the victim. And that's the reason why I'm very passionate about it. How have you seen the manifestation of sexual violence change during your tenure in terms of trafficking and forced marriage? Because we have new players, we have extremists. When I took over the mandates, yes, Al-Shabaab was still there, but Boko Haram was not there. Al-Qaeda was just in name. He wasn't, he didn't take territories. ISIS had not been formed. Now we have seven countries out of the 19 countries I work in who have extremists. And because we have these extremists in, in, in these countries of conflict, they have used sexual violence as a tool to achieve their strategic objective. It's become part of the political economy. So that's why trafficking has become a big issue because they sell the girls and the children out of the countries which they live. So we have seen a lot of challenges within the last couple of years. But most important is because we have actually been able to collect more information. The more we monitor, the more we analyze the information we get, the more we report about it, the more we get more facts. Because this is a crime that is as old as war itself, but it wasn't there. Because it's happening in areas where there's insecurity, the information that comes out is very limited. So the more information we get, the more we tend to understand where these crimes are taking place, who are committing the crimes, and why. So we know that we still not got to the end of it. And I think the information we're receiving is not up to 30 or 40% of the people we're targeting. And I hope that as time comes on, we'll get more and more information. What's the next step? What needs to happen next? 
we have got the global legal framework. We have all the resolution, almost all the resolution as we need. Is how do you translate this resolution to solutions on the ground in the countries where the crimes are being committed? How do we make sure this country, the leadership of this country, take leadership of this issue? take ownership and responsibility and fight the fight, which means, of course, making sure that anybody who commits a crime, you can prosecute them, providing the necessary support. So at the global level at the UN, I think we've done as much as we can, is how we translate all these UN resolutions to solutions on the ground in the countries where the crimes are being committed. That's the biggest step we have to do. It is only then will we be able to know exactly to the extent to which we have succeeded. That was outgoing special representative of the UN Secretary General for Sexual Violence and Conflict, Zainab Hawa Bangura, speaking to UN Radio's Lucy Dean. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. One month since famine was declared in parts of South Sudan, United Nations Children's Fund, together with the World Food Programme, has delivered life-saving assistance to about 145,000 people, including 33,000 children under the age of five. UNICEF says there's an urgent request for nearly 255 million US dollars to respond to immediate needs in northeast Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan and Yemen. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by James Alder, Regional Chief of Communication of Eastern and Southern Africa of UNICEF in Nairobi, Kenya. Good morning, James, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Thanks so much, Lulu. Now, James, give us a sense of what the situation is on the ground in South Sudan at the moment. It's extremely dire. Um, I don't think many humanitarian workers have seen anything like it, and that's those who have been in some of the world's tougher places. Uh, you now have more than a million people displaced across the country. Displaced, of course, means that they've lost their homes, not in any natural catastrophe, but in a sense where they have been violently attacked, their villages razed to the ground, often seen family members brutally killed or raped, and then often mothers will go one way, children will go other in this, in this crazy, tumultuous moment. On top of this, of course, people have simply run out of means to cope. I think South, Sudan, South Sudanese have done miraculously in the way that they have managed crises after crises but they've just hit a breaking point now, and that's why uh, famine has now been declared. That's why, unfortunately, we do see people dying in famine-like situations, and we see another million on the brink of that. So, and every one of these people has an incredible story to tell. So it's, it's hard to overstate just how bad it is. And, of course, that includes for humanitarian workers. We saw seven, seven NGO colleagues this week um, brutally and senselessly killed. So it's a very tough place, but it is a, t- it is a place, I have to say, where UNICEF uh, is making an extraordinary difference in a very, very difficult circumstances. Now, James, uh, definitely we've seen that, and it is horrendous to see the pictures, especially, um, you know, visually on television and our, and our uh, television programs, news programs. James, the humanitarian aid operations in the region, um, famine is uh, basically affecting northeast Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan and uh, uh, Yemen. And this is more uh, more than uh, 
more more often than not because of um, infighting and conflict within those countries. Just take us through the humanitarian operation aid operations that you're currently working on in that particular region. Yeah, it's it's very true. I think that the phrase that's been used by very senior United Nations officials is that it's that it's man-made. That the people who continually struggle to survive are being let down, being let down in their own countries. Um, so the humanitarian operation is, is very broad, as you said earlier. There, in terms of the response by UNICEF and World Food Program, if we look say to start at say South Sudan, uh, that is an extraordinary. Um, Broad operation. We have these things called rapid response missions. There's been dozens, dozens of them. Uh, UNICEF and WFP and China's fly into areas, often behind where there is conflict. Uh, I think I went on the very first one of these in 2014. They're high impact because you do again get tens of thousands of people coming out of the bush who have been fleeing and looking for anything. They're living on they're living on roots. They're living on water lilies. They're living on foods that will not give you sustenance over a prolonged period. So then UNICEF, of course, reaches them with immediate uh, water needs, uh, nutrition needs. World Food Program does food drops. So things are highly effective. They're also highly expensive. And uh, when you talk of the other countries in that region, Somalia is one that we are deeply concerned about. Again, we've been ringing alarm bells for probably six months now. Somalis are moving uh, across the country. They're losing livestock very, very quickly. Of course, that's a, that's a precursor to something much worse. And as always in these situations, children are the worst to suffer. We keep talking of hundreds of thousands of kids with severe acute malnutrition. And I think for, for everyone, for me and for your listeners, these numbers become impossible to digest. What's important is that each one of these is a, is a small child, a six-month-old, two or three years old, with a mum who's doing everything she possibly can to keep her little one alive. But they've reached that point where, you know, the region... The international community simply must step up. I, we, we, we must have moved beyond a time where we're having multiple famines in, in 2017. Lulu. Now, James, just looking at the, the numbers and figures that uh, the international community has to step up to, um, and uh, some of them have come out and, and pledged that they will uh, bring forward some money. But in terms of their response and turnaround time after making those pledges or agreeing to to assist in, 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 in this crisis, what's turnaround time and are they coming to the table? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, UNICEF, I speak for UNICEF, obviously you have funding gaps everywhere. Uh, if I look at Somalia, um, you know, the, 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 the organization had to raise its, its needs from around 60 million to 150 million. And about 50% of that isn't funded. Now, it's important to say that, that many donors have come forward early. Uh, the UK's Department for International Development is certainly one, and many others who, who have seen this and who do not want to repeat what happened in 2011, which was, of course, by the time, in 2011, by the time famine was declared, more than 100,000 people and tens of thousands, tens of thousands of children were dead. So the declaration of famine means it's too late, and that's, that's why everyone literally is working around the clock, um, whether it's colleagues here or whether my colleagues in Somalia or South Sudan, they literally are working 24-7 in very difficult environments just because I think everyone is saying, not again. Um, so the donor funding is, of course, critical because we do know what works and we do need what's called supply pipelines. You can't suddenly tomorrow say we need five plane loads of therapeutic food and, and have it delivered. You do need a pipeline. So the money and the... You know, on one hand, the generosity of donors is so critical. On the other hand, we know that 
money today is much cheaper spent, much better spent than money in a month's time. So it becomes a case of it. it's right in practice, but it's also right in principle. Now, James, the numbers that are, uh, are being uh, put around with regards to the number of displaced people, um, we're looking at today about 1.9 million and half of them being children. Um, in terms of systems in place, are, is there any way to re- reunite uh, these children with their loved ones, with their families? I know the figure might change on a daily basis with new people coming in through the different borders. But uh, with uh, figures, is there? Are you? Is UNICEF working with uh, with uh, these countries to ensure that people are united with their family or the young children? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things UNICEF. Um, one of our strongest areas in child protection is exactly that, which is family tracing and reunification. And, of course, we live at a time now where so many people have, have some sort of feature phone um, and SMS technology has become much quicker, uh, much more efficient, and we've been able to reunite many more children rather than a slow sort of paper trail. At the same time, um, when we crunch numbers, it's a, something like a $1,000 U.S. dollars uh, the, the, the cost from once you find a child to once you're able to reunify. Because, again, you, the, a mother or father may have gone 300 kilometers one way and a child 300 the other just in that, in that madness of fighting and then looking for safety. But it's something that UNICEF and partners do, I think, very well. Um, it is not cheap. Uh, and I think the refugee crisis that you mentioned as well, Lulu, is is a critical one. And I think it's also a story that, that these countries in Africa should be very proud of. I mean, we constantly hear of the migration crisis in Europe, and it is, of course, very real. But if you look at, say, Uganda, which has taken around 700,000 South Sudanese refugees in the last six months, and that number is, is continuing every day. It's around 2,000 a day. And they do it in best practices. These people get get space, they get services, and they and they get support from the government and a wide range of humanitarian partners. I think that's a, an incredible, incredible story from whether it's Kenya or Ethiopia or Uganda that that continuously accepts African brothers and sisters from from neighbouring countries. But again, it's a huge burden to shoulder, uh, to, to, to shoulder um, and international support is required to ensure that these countries can keep. Uh, this, this generous approach that they've managed so well. James, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us and all the best in your endeavours and ensuring that uh, aid is delivered in all the different countries where famine has hit um, those regions. Thank you so much, Lulu. That was James Elder, Regional Chief of Communication of Eastern and Southern Africa of UNICEF in Nairobi, Kenya, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Anne Ivorian Court has acquitted former First Lady Simone Bagbo of crimes against humanity during the 2010-2011 post-election crisis. And Ethiopian Court has sentenced 16 people to prison after finding them guilty of trying to create a separate state. And the United Nations has confirmed the deaths of two members of a Security Council expert group who had been missing in the DRC for more than two weeks. Those are the stories making headlines.
something is changing at Channel Africa. Could it be news? Could it be your favorite presenter? Could it be? That's for you, our listener, to find out. From the 1st of April 2017, something will be changing or happening on your radio station. Be the first one to find out by staying tuned in. Don't miss it. Remember to check our website and all social media platforms such as Twitter at Channel Africa One, our Facebook page and Instagram and YouTube. High-level business representatives who were part of South African Finance Minister Pravin Gordon's aborted investor roadshow cancelled the U.S. leg of the trip. One of the delegates, Johannesburg Stock Exchange CEO Nikki Newton-King, says they have had several meetings with investors in London, but she says the meetings have been difficult without the finance minister. Gordon returned to South Africa on Wednesday. Rather, on Tuesday, after he was recalled by President Jacob Zuma, Newton King says the investment tour could not go on. There has been no word from Treasury nor the presidency regarding why the minister was called back home. Amina Akram reports. It still remains unclear why Finance Minister Pravin Godan was called back to the country while on an international investor roadshow in the United Kingdom. Speculation is rife that he could be axed as finance minister, but there has not been any confirmation regarding this. Kodan has, however, diluted rumors and says he is still the finance minister of South Africa. He spoke briefly yesterday to reporters outside the Pretoria High Court, where he is seeking an order to stop the Gupta-owned Oakby group of companies from putting him under pressure about their closed bank accounts. I was there to have a discussion, and we had a discussion, and we left. But I need to go now. I have an appointment. Rumors are supposed to be rumors, aren't they? I didn't recall myself. No, no. I think ask the presidency. Godan has had a difficult time since his reappointment as finance minister in 2015. This after President Zuma fired then finance minister Nklanklan Nene, replacing him with the virtually unknown David Van Ruin. Godan has not had good relations with some individuals, at state-owned enterprises and government agencies. His relationship with SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane has deteriorated. The commissioner has asked President Jacob Zuma to intervene over the matter. No, there's no need for anybody to intervene. Mr. Moyane is the accounting officer, and like any other accounting officer, is responsible to a minister, and he must be responsible to a minister. That's the end of the story. The finance minister has also taken firm decisions regarding state-owned entities. He has criticized management of some of the SOEs. He believes SOEs should have good corporate governance with ethical and qualified people to run them. We have been clear that one of the risks of our fiscal framework is the financial state of state-owned entities or companies. Let me emphasize that any support to these companies will be done in a fiscally sustainable manner. No state-owned entity will dictate to government how it should be assisted, and nothing will be done that runs contrary to the fiscal prudence that our country is renowned for. Godan has also faced relentless persecution from the Hawks. National Prosecuting Authority head Sean Abrahams in a spectacular press conference 
announced his intention to charge Godan. But days later, Abrahams did an equally spectacular about turn, dropping the charges. In his second term, the finance minister has continued with the fiscal consolidation process to stabilize debt in the medium term. Meanwhile, the RAND yesterday revised its earlier losses against the U.S. dollar. This after Minister Godin says he was still the finance minister. Economists say speculation about a cabinet reshuffle and uncertainty over the finance minister is fueling the RAND weakness and rattling markets. Nedbank Sin Economist Nikki Weimer. So clearly there are concerns and um, that has been reflected in the value of the RAND. So one should be concerned about that. But again, markets tend to overdo themselves. There haven't been um, any news on, on you know, the relationship or the actions um, or any action or, or comment from uh, President Zuma or Finance Minister Gordon other than the obvious ones. You know, the RAND is now slowly starting to pull back a little bit, but it is still very, very volatile. That was Nedbank senior economist Nikki Vema ending that report by Amina Akram in Johannesburg. Leader of South Africa's ruling ANC in the Western Cape Province Legislature, Kaya Makaka, has once again called on Premier Helen Zilla to resign. Emotions ran high during a debate on her controversial tweets on colonialism. Zilla asked during her tweets last week whether we could have had a transition into specialized health care and medication without a colonial influence. Makaka called for the debate, saying such utterances are opposed to democracy. Chris Mabuya reports. I have requested you to leave for failure to obey the instructions of a presiding officer. Thank you. The debate was marked by insults and high emotions with the speaker Shana Fernandez ordering one of the ANC MPLs to leave the provincial house for the rest of the day. During the debate, Makatla described colonialism as a barbaric and inhuman system. He called for the removal of Zile as the premier. If the DA wants us to believe that they are committed to our constitutional democracy, they will remove Honorable Zile as premier of the Western Cape. If they do not remove her, we shall be vindicated in our conviction that the DA is indeed a party which protects and rewards racism. And we appeal to the DA to take that decision and remove her now. We don't want any apologies. The EFF also supported the ANC's call for Zile to resign. Colonialism, therefore, Speaker, was and is still used to suppress black people. The EFF, therefore, requests Premier Zile to do the honorable thing and immediately resign as Premier of the Western Cape because of a racist tweet. ACDP's Fallon Christian says the party is against colonialism, but asks members of the provincial legislature to accept Zile's apology. As the ACDP, we can never defend the gross violation of human rights when it comes to colonialism. But, Mr. Speaker, as a Christian party, we believe the Premier in the media said, I apologize. That report by Chris Mabuya. There is more turmoil in the education field in Cameroon. Teachers in the country's eight French-speaking regions have joined their colleagues on strike in its two English-speaking regions. Francophonie teachers say they are owed salaries from as far back as seven years. Francophonie. 
No pay, no school were among the signs some of the hundreds of teachers from Cameroon's secondary schools were holding on Tuesday at their rally outside the Ministry of Finance in Yaoundé. Moki Kinzega reports. Hundreds of teachers from Cameroon's secondary and high schools shout at the country's Ministry of Finance that they will not go back to teach if all of their salary arrears are not paid. Among them is 27-year-old Rogers Kiven, who traveled to Yaoundé from Mokolo, a locality on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria. He says he had to cover the close to 1,000-kilometer distance to tell officials of the Ministry of Finance that he has sacrificed to work without a salary for four years now and can no longer work without pay. We were made to understand that one month after we leave school, our salaries were going to be paid. But we discovered that two years, three years, four years after that, we still have not had a franc. We communicated our minister and he communicated with his colleague from finance. From those communications, we were able to deduce that our menace were with the minister of finance. In as much as we are not paid, we are not going to leave this place. 30-year-old Zudom Carvin says he traveled from eastern Cameroon to join his peers in the strike because the government has not respected its promises to pay them. He blames administrative bottlenecks and what he calls bad faith on the side of the government of Cameroon. They ask us to compile documents and even when we compile those documents, sometimes they get lost. So we don't want their system to go on like that. He must pay us. The teachers grouped under an association called the Indignant Teachers of Cameroon say they are heavily indebted and poor that they lack what to eat and cannot take care of their families, yet the government behaves as if nothing is happening. Cameroon has 80,000 secondary and high school teachers. Each year, about 2,000 graduates from teacher training colleges are recruited and promised to be paid one month after they resume work, but their wages either come very late or do not come at all. Musa Jafaru, Director of Human Resources at the Ministry of Secondary Education, says their duty is to treat the files, attesting that the teachers are actually working and then forward them to the Ministry of Finance that is responsible for paying salaries. The dossier that I'm going to talk about he says Cameroon's Ministry of Secondary Education has forwarded to the Ministry of Finance more than 11,000 authenticated files from teachers who have to be paid. He says he understands that it may be difficult to raise the money. That report by Moki Kinzaga. I'm Tabi Solohoko with an economics update. Good morning.
The Zimbabwean government has suspended with immediate effect the importation of meat and meat products from Brazil. The permanent secretary in the Zimbabwean Ministry of Industry and Commerce, Abigail Shinoa, says that the decision was made following reports that some meat processors in the South American country were selling and exporting rotten and substandard meat. Brazil has reportedly been exporting substandard meat for several years. Shinoa says that the government of Zimbabwe is suspending with immediate effect the importation of all meat and meat products from Brazil until further notice. A business representatives who were part of South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon's abortive investor roadshow have cancelled the US leg of the trip. The minister returned to South Africa on Tuesday after President Jacob Zuma recalled him. One of the delegates, JSE Chief Executive Officer Nikki Newton King, says that they held several meetings with investors in London, but adds it was difficult without Gordon. No, in fact, I'm heading back home now because we've not been able to proceed with the roadshow without the minister. Because as you might imagine, investors are taking a a wait-and-see attitude to developments. Um, and and I think um, it's much more appropriate that we convey the future developments with the minister when he is in a position to do that. The Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa, Comesa, says that the use of biotechnology such as genetically modified organisms in the agriculture sector should be encouraged to increase productivity in Zambia. Speaking at a parliamentarian sensitization and awareness workshop on biosafety and biotechnology in the capital Lusaka last week, Comesa Assistant Secretary General. Kipiega Chagule, said that agriculture was a major contributor to economic growth in the most developed countries. Embracing technologies such as the use of GMOs on plants should be considered as a result. Travel and tourism professionals have begun preparations for the annual tourism conference, one of the largest tourism marketing events on the African calendar. The event, hosted by South African Tourism in conjunction with Tourism Natal and Tourism Durban, will be held in that uh, KZN province. Ntlanta Matlangu reports. Thousands of travel and tourism professionals, including tour operators, game lodges, transport and online travel, amongst others, will in May this year descend on the tropical city of Durban for Indaba 2017. The event seeks to create market access and business growth for African tourism products and services. Top story, or rather... Financial indicators at this hour. The US dollar trades at 12.86 in South Africa, 10.13 in Botswana, 9.50 Zambia, 7.9 British pound, 9.2 euro, gold $1,248, platinum $954 an ounce, brand crude $51.50 a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. As sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with athletics and Olympic news. Kenya's Under Fire Olympic Committee, the NOCK, agreed to make changes to its constitution 
and call for fresh elections in May after its Rio Games debacle. The committee's decision comes after it twice failed to reach consensus to enact the reforms, prompting the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to freeze funding to Kenya earlier this month. The IOC assisted in the drafting of new laws following a national outcry over corruption and the treatment of the Kenyan team at last summer's Olympics. The new document strips the incumbent NOC executive committee members, including Kipchoge, of a voting monopoly, which allowed them to maintain their grip on power. Under the previous system, the 13 members of the executive committee each had a vote, while the 21 sports associations had one vote per body. The new constitution also allows athletes to run for membership of the executive committee, whereas before only the heads of national sports associations were eligible. 2015 SPA Women's Grand Prix champion Lebohang Palula says she's fearless heading into Sunday's season opening race of the annual women's 10-kilometer challenge series. At least 21,000 runners are expected to take to the streets of Cape Town on Sunday morning as they make their return to the South Africa's popular female race. Last year in Cape Town, Palula finished third behind Rutendo Nyahura of Zimbabwe with Evert van Sale taking first prize. The long-distance runner hopes that fortune will favor her this time around as she looks to get the season underway on a positive note. I don't fear anyone. The only thing that I fear, I'm going to run against time. If I can do my time, then I'll win the race. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested with other people's race. I'm interested on my own race. So I'm not looking at Mabaseka or Yvette or Rene. You, you'll never know, you'll never know what's going to happen in Cape Town. What if Mabaseka is sick in Cape Town? What if I'm sick in Cape Town and all their eyes is on me. So you, you, you don't have to tell, uh, tell yourself that you're looking at someone's level. You never know what's going to happen in the race day. Palula, who is fresh from recovering from a knee injury, she sustained during last year's Cape Town Marathon, says she's excited to be back in action again. And while she's confident that she's recovered well from her injury, she will use Sunday's race to test her fitness. What I can say, I'm very excited about the race that's going to take place in Cape Town. Even though I was injured, but I tried to get my fitness back. But we'll see when I get there on Sunday how is the fitness because because of the injuries. But now I'm improving. I can tell. On to cricket news. The final day of the third Test between South Africa and New Zealand at Sydney Park in Hamilton was abandoned due to the extensive showers without any delivery being bowled in anger. South Africa were staring down the barrel on 80 for 5 and still had to erase a first innings deficit of 95 runs. The Black Caps were strongly favored to produce a series equaling win, but the elements did not allow the intriguing contest to unfold for the full duration of the fifth day. Quentin de Kock and Favre de Plessis, each on 15, did not have the opportunity to display the dogged determination for which both champions are internationally revered. The Proteus captain, Duplessis, considered they gave the host too many chances. And finally, with football news, a full-capacity crowd of about 12,000 football fans were left disappointed as Bafana Bafana were held to a goalless draw by Angola in an international friendly match played at the Buffalo City Stadium in Eastern Cape Province last night. Ketika coach Owen Dagama had made a total of nine changes to the team that started during the 3-1 win against Guinea-Bissau, giving many players a chance, including the two young stars, promoted from the South Africa's under-20 team, Amajita. Dagama admitted that his combinations didn't work. It was a game that we, we wanted really to, 
to see what we really have within depth, within our depth. But we try to keep uh, some form of a structure with Mator, Valdu, Charlie, and Mabunda there, just to have a, a, a good spine. And we wanted to, to give uh, Diamond to Paul a chance. Langerman as well, he, he was part of the, the structure. And obviously to throw in the, the youngsters on the deep and, 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 and let them get a feel of it. It was not a test for the youngsters. It was for them to get a feel. Um, and you've got to understand, it's, it's, it's a big jump from under 20 to Bafana. It's a big jump from Pakamani as well. It's a big jump, but uh, <coughs> we, we just wanted them to get a feel. That is your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Six aid workers killed in an ambush in South Sudan. UN expresses concern over sexual violence in conflict areas. An anti-apartheid struggle stalwart Ahmed Kathrada to be buried today, as well as veteran actor Joe Mafela. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Sitlen Dovu and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is the Soul Brothers with a song titled Buzzle Booyah.